While the term pop culture is usually used to imply lighter topics in film, music, or books, Dr. Kenita Brooks, a Michigan State University scholar of black feminist theory, says that it's often through that lens that more complex ideas about identity and politics are introduced to the masses. Brooks has written extensively about the intersection of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and the narrative of black women. Recently, Brooks has begun writing about the way Beyonce has used her art to rewrite how the black American experience is shown in pop culture. I got to speak with her about the power behind who creates the narrative we see in popular art. One, we've had Beyonce's career, someone who's grown, right? She's almost 40. We've been knowing about Beyonce since she was about 15. So we've seen someone grow and come into their own as a woman, as a more political being, as all of these things. And um, I always say Beyonce's greatest talent is her ability to tap into a zeitgeist right before it comes, comes to full fruition. And she's able to give a sort of, to give a sound to that cultural movement. Right. Um, I think she did that with Lemonade. Um, I think she's doing that with Black is King um, and Afrofuturism. But also remember that first we are educators as professors. And I became a Beyonce scholar because my students came to me. And they were like, look, Dr. Brooks, we see she's doing all this stuff. And, and you know, you know the secrets and you know the Orisha and all that like conjure who stuff. What is she doing? And it was their question because they kept coming to me to ask me. I said, well, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna teach a class about it. And th that's how everything started off. And I really just had my students read a very rigorous black feminist theory course, but I sprinkled Beyonce on it, and they were my hardest working students. <laughs> and my most enthusiastic students. And if we can use someone like Beyonce, who it has both, you know, strengths and weaknesses, but if we can use someone like Beyonce to have these deeper conversations as an entryway, I think we can definitely take advantage of it. And speaking of that entryway, Beyonce's reclamation of her ancestors, um, it's remarkable. And uh, what she's doing bringing some extremely hidden ideas to the surface and introducing people to a subject that uh, you, Dr. Brooks, have been writing and teaching about for a while now. And, and that is this folk magic that's called conjure, or sometimes hoodoo. Uh, it's a spiritual practice that is uh, completely unique to Black American culture in that it's a mix of, of these many traditions uh, that came together in the South. Okay, it's, it's, it's a little complicated because it gets complicated. And I was just on a panel with um, an Appalachian horror scholar, right? Because Appalachian magic, called, referred to as mountain magic, is very similar, has some similarities to conjure and hoodoo, right? Um, I think it's necessary to speak about the influence of indigeneity, so indigenous cultures, but also that those folks who were from indigenous, Euro indigenous European cultures kept some of their old ways, as well as us Southern African Americans, that we had the influence of the indigenous cultures of Native Americans. We had the indigenous African cultures that we brought with us, over through the uh, transatlantic slave trade, as well as the influence of indigenous white cultures, right? So of uh, Scottish and Irish and all of these things, everyone has their sort of religious practices. 
And conjurer hoodoo was this sort of piece, piecing together of all of these practices. And I want to be clear that conjurer and hoodoo, they are not religions of themselves. Many times they were considered supplementary. Most folks who practice conjurer and hoodoo often identified as Christians and still do. So these are just some practices that are sort of cobbled together, work along with medicine, ethnobotany, healing. A lot of midwives use these things. And it's this idea of holistic healing that we talk about today and saying that it's not just about the tonics or the teas or the pills you take, but it's also about your spiritual health and growth. So these midwives, these conjure women would often treat the entire person, right? If they went and they ate it in the birth of a child, they would treat the mother. There was a practice in Southern Louisiana, I believe, and when um, a week after the mother would give birth, it was three days to a week, after a mother would give birth, she would have to get up and walk around the house, right? And like go outside and walk around the outside of the house. And it was a way of sort of ending giving a sort of an emotional end to the process of giving birth. But it was also um, had the physical part of helping the mother know that she was, you know, getting her blood moving so she doesn't clot, so she doesn't do, um, so she doesn't have hemorrhaging, all of these things together. So you had this where you're treating the whole part of the mother as well as the psychological and spiritual healing, right? Of getting out of the house, of getting out of the bed, of saying, you know what? You're good. My great-grandmother was a conjure woman and she would say, you know, if anyone had any sort of surgery or anything else, she's like, 24 hours later, you need to be out of that bed. And she's like, you're going to start walking. You're going to start doing this. My mother had a hernia surgery when she was a little girl. And my grandmother, within like three hours, she was like, okay, we want to get you up and start walking around. Just stand up. Okay. And then by, within, you know, 24 hours, she was walking down the hall and things like that. And this is helping with the clotting and everything else and the healing, but it's also of you are not going to be bedridden. You know, you, that's bring a healthier spirit to this interaction that, that, you know, that you did have surgery, but we want to make sure that you heal in all ways. And we're speaking to Dr. Kenitra Brooks. She's the Audrey and John Leslie Endowed Chair in Literary Studies for the Department of English at Michigan State University. Uh, she specializes in the study of black women, genre fiction, popular culture, uh, horror narratives in popular culture as well. Dr. Brooks, if you, if you don't mind, could you talk a bit more about your great-grandmother and her conjure practice? Because uh, she had a huge impact on you and, and how you came to teach about this practice academically. Yeah, my great-grandmother. And this is where um, Beyonce became really, you know, I was on the journey and path of coming from Southern Louisiana, um, coming from a family, was one of the founding families for my church. Also knowing and hearing these whispers and of the women in my family of having certain abilities, of being able to be healers, but also were spiritual practitioners in other ways, while still also be very, very Christian. Right. And so it was very hush hush. And it was really about me sort of beginning to investigate what was going on with the women in my family and starting to hear and trace our uh, the generations of healers to Plaquemines Parish. Hearing that my great grandmother, who was the community hairdresser, but was also the community conjure woman, folks would come over for healing tonics and teas. She was able to identify medicinal 
plants just by walking by them. So she had all of this knowledge and then dealing with the idea that some of those practices died with her, right? And some of those practices died with her because my family became more educated and, you know, got college degrees and became, um, you know, teachers and principals and all of these things that became very respectable Black folks, right? But in that, it's of me dealing with being thankful for that tradition, but also dealing with the idea that some things were lost because they were sometimes considered less than, because they were considered as um, not being learned, right? Um, not the correct type of education. And of me starting to make those connections and using my formalized education that my grandparents and parents worked so hard for me to get to then reconnect those traditions of healing, those traditions of spiritual well-being and exploration that my great-grandmother manifested. Recognizing that I come from generations, I, I believe I'm like, what, the 15th generation of healers in my family, right? And coming into that being and making peace with it and resurrecting that tradition. And let's bring pop culture back into this conversation um, because we've seen aspects of conjure depicted in these visual art pieces uh, by by Beyonce, uh, Solange as well, two of the most visible artists referencing this practice. Uh, but how else has this been portrayed culturally? Uh, it, it hasn't always been fair from, from what I understand. It, it, it's been demonized. And I talk to my students about this all the time. I talk to them not, not just about um, conjure and hoodoo, but also tr other traditional African religious practices such as uh, Voodoo, Santeria, um, Ifa, Obea. Um, and all of these, I say the only reason that you are scared of this is because of anti-Blackness. And I say it's because that these were practices that gave African-American, Caribbean-American, um, enslaved persons a sense of self, a sense of history, and a knowledge that was considered forbidden because it would give them political power as enslaved people. Right. Um, I say you 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 have Buddha all over your home. So it's not about Abrahamic religions. I say that, you know, you pay money to see Thor. You pay money to see Thor and Loki fight Gila. Right. And Thor is a god of thunder who's Shango from West Africa. Um, Gila is a goddess of the dead who is Oya from West Africa, Narisha. Loki is a trickster god who is Elegua as an Orisha. Right. Uh, the only reason you're afraid of these names, the only reason you're afraid of these people is because they were, they were gods that gave enslaved folks power. It's pure anti-Blackness. It's much easier to say that there is nothing there, that it's a blank space. But I also think that in, in looking at this work of Conjure and Hoodoo that was very uh, female-centric, in many ways, right? Which became another area because of patriarchy, both within and outside of the black community, became a point of contention. But, you know, we have different ways of knowing. And I say this because um, our, the way we see the world is different. And I talk to my students, and this is how I actually became a horror scout, because it's this idea of the living dead as something to be afraid of when so many black folks that I grew up, we live with our ancestors. So the living dead is not something to be feared, it's something to be revered. 
It's a place of power. It's a place of knowledge to know your ancestors to actually live with the dead. They're not zombies. They're spirits living in your home with you who you give honor to, right? I was saying when, when black women do horror, it switches up. It looks different, right? It's not necessarily something that's bad or pejorative. Even the idea of possession in traditional African religious practices and even within the African-American tradition, spiritual tradition of the black church, uh, they're shouting. When you talk about it within the traditional African religious context, it's considered being written or possessed by an ancestor or an Orisha. And for so much of horror and for so much of broader Christianity and practices, being possessed is something always seen as demonic. Whereas here, being possessed or being written by an ancestor, you're then taken to given prophecy, right? You key in, you pass down knowledge, you give in knowledge, right? So someone where in uh, the more dominant society, they would be locked up for being either insane or, you know, given uh, the demonic rights and, you know, an exorcism and these sorts of things. But it doesn't always have to be something that is negative. It can be something that is a thing of beauty. It can be something that is a place of power. And it all depends on the shifts into how you see the world, how you're taught to see the world. And acknowledging that we see things differently and that's okay, I think that's what's most powerful. What I'm fascinated with and my scholarly work is taking me here and I'm saying, you know what? These women, um, like my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother, and I want to name them. My great-grandmother is Myrtle Anderson. Her maiden name was Carrier, and her mother was Julia Carrier, and they were from Plaquemines Parish. You know, the worlds they were occupying just wasn't a world that the dominant culture was able to see, and therefore they were unable to appreciate, and also because it came from Southern, uneducated Black women. And so it was deemed unworthy. And I want to um, change the script and say, why aren't these women called philosophers, right? Why aren't these women seen as botanists, right? Root work is working with plants. Why aren't they botanists? Why aren't these women seen as pharmacists? Who do we give that designation to? And uh, Dr. Christy Dotson, who's in, at Michigan State um, in the philosophy department, she talks about the epistemic or the knowledge ways, the epistemic oppression and exclusion of Black women. The ways in which your, your knowledge ways, the ways in which you see the world, they are deemed unworthy. And therefore, you're not important you're not important enough to call a philosopher. I think that has major implications if we start to change how we see these women and start to see them as women of power, start to see them as women of intelligence, and start to see them as women of history that had huge impacts on our world.